We have a copy of the scriptures with you. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Gospel of John, chapter 3. I appreciate your uh, prayers for the uh, upcoming days. Uh, Lord willing, on Friday, uh, I'll be uh, making my way uh, to uh, Brazil, a city called Terracenia. Uh, and we'll be preaching there next Lord's Day, the next two Lord's Days, uh, then teaching uh, part two of pastoral theology to a uh, Covenant Baptist Seminary, the Latin American uh, division there Monday uh, through Friday. So there's a lot uh, to be accomplished in these days ahead. I'll miss being with you. Uh, I'm, this is, I'm almost at the end of fulfilling uh, my obligations uh, to the seminary, so I'm looking forward uh, to that. John chapter 3 contains for us one of the most famous narratives in all of the Word of God. A man named Nicodemus, a Pharisee, has come to the Lord Jesus by night uh, in order to uh, seek uh, wisdom and counsel uh, from the Lord Jesus. And it is in this passage that we read uh, the uh, famous words of our Savior concerning the new birth, uh, th that you must be born again. Uh, this causes some consternation uh, in regard to the thinking of Nicodemus as to why he would need uh, to undergo such a, a, a spiritual birth. And Jesus uh, says to him now in verse 14, uh, these are the words of our text. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life or eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this time in your word and do pray uh, that you would draw near and uh, own the proclamation of the glorious saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for its simplicity, and may none of us despise uh, this simplicity, but rather all of us embrace it for your glory and our eternal good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. From 1346 to 1352, a disease that became known as the Black Death claimed one-third of the European human population having mortality rates as high as 80% of those who were infected died. For years, no one knew what caused it, and hence no one knew how to cure it. But if you lived at that time and were told that you had it, if the uh, pronounced uh, physical symptoms came upon you, it would be, for all intents and purposes, a death sentence a death sentence for which there was no cure. Let me change the analogy now to a, not quite the same, but a certainly a word that is terrifying to imagine all of us. You sat down with your doctor and they told you that the results of your test show that you have cancer. And if you were told, or if it were to be announced tomorrow or this week, that a complicated, expensive and painful procedure had been discovered that would guarantee a complete remission or cure 
of all forms of cancer, would it not be heralded as the single greatest medical discovery of the history of mankind? You can imagine that if they said, everybody who has cancer can now be cured. And if you do what we are offering to you, you never need to fear dying of this disease. That news, I imagine, would be greeted with unprecedented media fanfare. The doctors would become celebrities, no doubt wealthy, and honor and acclaim would be given to them. And the hospitals who served up this wonder drug would no doubt be besieged by eager clients. Thousands upon thousands of patients and family members would state their willingness to pay any price, to undergo whatever intense pain needed to be undergone in order to get a few more years in this life free from the ravages of that disease. That not be so? Now, let me give you another scenario. Imagine that there was a disease that, unlike cancer and even unlike the Black Death, was always fatal. Bubonic plague was only fatal 80% of the time. And this disease is actually far more devastating in its impact and its effects. This disease, which is hereditary and which strikes every child who has been born with one exception, it affects these children while they are yet developing in the womb. And unlike cancer, this disease does not fixate upon one or two or three organs, but reaches throughout the totality of their humanity. This disease gets into their brains, altering their thinking pattern. It reaches their mouths, affecting their speech, their throats. It affects their eyes and their ears, their hands and their feet, their sexual organs, but it especially strikes at the heart. And this disease is not just in one nation, but in every nation on earth and affects right now every single child born into the world. Now, this has been the case. This disease has been there for thousands of years. And now imagine that I am announcing a cure has been found, a wonderful cure, a glorious cure, a full and a certain cure. And furthermore, the inventor of the cure is freely offering it to everybody. And he's published this discovery online. It's been given space in every major newspaper and magazine print as well as virtual. It's announced at great personal cost on every radio station and television program. It's even been validated by the most reputable authorities. And testimonies are now being given by hundreds of thousands of all around the world, tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations who have taken the cure. And yet, on the day in which it is announced that it will be freely available to all, you expect every clinic to be overwhelmed. Not only is the clinic ignored, but those inside are mocked. And some who proclaim its news in other lands, we find, are being captured and tortured and killed. In an American news uh, program, they bring on certain authorities who now laugh at the credentials of the doctor and mock the intelligence of those who have been cured. Now, that sounds unbelievable. Certainly, something like that never could happen. And yet, I have just told you a true story. 
It's recorded for us in the pages of the Bible, and it is something that helps us to explain not only the world in which we live, but its need and its cure. What I have laid out concerning the response of the world to the gospel is not only evident in our lives, it's evident in our nation, and sadly it's been on display in this very room for decades. It is this very scenario that I want to focus on in God's word this morning. We see in the passage before us the desperate need of mankind, and we see a full, free, wonderful, and glorious cure for man's greatest curse. As we consider the words of our Lord Jesus, I want to look at it uh, under the following headings. I want to see, first of all, the great disease shown. Secondly, the great cure demonstrated, and finally, the great promise declared. Let's consider, first of all, the great disease shown. And I want to show briefly here, I've already touched on it to some degree, the setting of our Lord's words, the historical event uh, presented, and then the spiritual significance of that event. That's what we want to look at under this first heading. Consider the setting of our Lord's words. I've already said this. Jesus is speaking to a man named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee of the Jews. Now, in the New Testament, those are almost always presented as the villains. You know, you'd almost hear the musical sting, dun, 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 you know, he's a Pharisee. And maybe picture all the Pharisees twisting their mustaches and glee as they try to destroy the Lord Jesus. But that wasn't true of all of them. And, and like the New Testament records that some of them were converted later on. And Nicodemus has taken a very keen interest in the Lord Jesus. And he believes by his own testimony that Jesus as a teacher has come from God. For nobody can do the things that Jesus did unless God was with him. And while there is that confession, there is also fear and embarrassment seen in him coming to the Lord Jesus at night. But as they interact with one another, Jesus tells him, that even he, a leader among the Jews, even he uh, who may be taking pride in his uh, purity, was somebody who needed to be born again. We'll have more to say about that in a moment. So that's something of the setting. Secondly, the historical event presented. You see there in verse uh, 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now, in those few words, Jesus is hearkening back to an event that we read about in our Bibles in the book of Numbers, uh, verse, uh, Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. And so as he's discussing here this spiritual condition of Nicodemus, Jesus focuses on an event that would have been well known, most likely to any Jew, but certainly to somebody who had made a study of God's word. He would have well known, and, and most all of you are familiar with it, certainly if you've grown up uh, in church, and this is... Uh, learn this in Sunday school or it's been talked about in your uh, family worship or your own reading of the Bible. And in a few words, Jesus would stir up in the mind of, of Nicodemus the whole scenario that had played out on the plains of a place called Moab many years before. Now, this is a time in which the people were in rebellion. And I was uh, reminded recently that there times when we would do family worship when the kids were, were smaller and going through passages like this. And I'd say something like, and the people began to grumble. And the kids would sometimes say, Dad, didn't we already read this? And I was like, no, this is a different time. 
<laughs> we already read about them complaining. Yeah, we did, and now they're doing it again. They were in rebellion. We read in verse 4 of Numbers 21 that their souls became discouraged. And part of this is due to their circumstances. This is wilderness wandering. It's not the best place to live. The food, uh, though sufficient and even pleasant, uh, did not have the variety and the spices of days gone by. And so they became discouraged. Uh, Another translation, perhaps a better translation, is actually their souls became hateful. And that hatred was particularly focused toward Moses, but toward, also toward the providence of God, and hence, toward God himself. And lo and behold, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, their hearts are hateful, and they begin to grumble, and they begin to complain. And God does something here that God very rarely does. There are very few times in all of the history of the world of the billions of provocations that have come God's way, rarely does God respond immediately. But he does so here, and he does so. Use your imaginative faculties here, folks. He does so in the form of an infestation of poisonous snakes. And when I say an infestation, I'm not just talking about dozens. We're talking about thousands of poisonous snakes that would have made their way into the camp. Um, I'm going to be preaching later on this year at a a church, a little conference down in a place called Elmendorf, Texas. And uh, where I usually stay, it's about half a mile or so from the house where I stay to the preaching house. Uh, and, um, of course it's, this is Texas and, uh, snakes and rattlesnakes and things like that are there. But w- the fun part is when they said, don't just look on the ground. You got to look in the trees. <laughs> and they, uh, that pre- a nice thought walking there and something dropping on you. But again, picture that, but picture that if you're out, if, 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 if not all of you, cause some of you are really cool around snakes. Uh, some of us aren't. But if you were out and you heard the distinct rattle of a snake, your heart would begin to pump. And particularly if you look down and it was only a few inches away, but then you start to take a step back and there's another one. You reach your hand out on a log and there's another one. You look up in the tree and there's dozens of them and they start raining down upon you. And you start hearing screams of you, of, of the, your companions, your wife, your, your husband, your, your father, mother, sons, daughters, brothers, and sisters as these snakes are coming and they're not just out, but they're biting. That's something of a picture of what this would have been like. Thousands of snake, snakes at the command of God have come out of the wilderness and infest the dwellings of the Israelites. All over the camp, men and women and children, Imagine what it might have been like, perhaps grabbing a shovel or an axe or a hoe trying to kill the snakes, but there there are too many. And people are again screaming, they're crying, people are dropping in agony as the poison courses through their body, gets into the heart, pumped through the bloodstream, burning its way through their system, bloating up perhaps, and then dying in agony. That's the background of this when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. That's why a serpent was 
lifted up. Now we'll see more about that in a moment. Now consider the spiritual significance shown. Jesus says that this is an illustration of something. All that I've laid out is, is, is of spiritual significance. And it's part of the reason I'm telling you, Nicodemus, that you need to be born again. Because whether you know it or not, something like this is happening in humanity and it's in you. It's not the poison of a literal serpent. But there is a disease, a plague, working its way into the hearts and bodies of, God, of, 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 of humanity. There is another plague among the people. Nicodemus, a plague of which I speak is something far more hideous than serpents at work in your heart or in, the, or in the hearts of all humanity because this poison is not from without, it is from within. Did you see that in a place like Romans chapter 3? As it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There's none who does good, not even one. And he goes on to describe and he even uses some of the language of the serpent here. Their throat is an open tomb and their tongues, they practice deceit. The poison of asp snakes is under their lips, whose mouth is full of bitterness and cursing their feet are swift to shed blood, etc., etc. And this is brought out most famously, perhaps, in a passage like Romans 3:23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6:23, the wages of sin is death. And Nicodemus, when I say to you, you must be born again, you must be born again. You need to understand this plague. As a Pharisee, one of the defining marks of a Pharisee was self-righteousness. They looked down on others and considered themselves to be righteous as part of the divine description of them. You've kept the law. You think you've kept the law. You're proud of your life. You think all is well with you and that this disease has not overtaken you. Or if it has, you have dealt with it with your own righteousness or religious uh, ritual. And that's why Nicodemus was incredulous that Jesus should say to someone like him, you must be born again. I mean, to go and say it to the riffraff that Jesus hung out with at times or spent time with, the unrighteous, the tax collectors and the whatnot, if he says to them, they must be born again, but Jesus is saying to the teacher of the law, you must be born again. You must undergo a radical change. You must undergo a birth from above. You must have the living God work in your heart. And it is because you've never reckoned with the state of your own heart before God, and because you've never reckoned with what that, what that state of heart means and what it will eventually bring about, you've not really considered the divine remedy. You see, sometimes we think to ourselves, well, we don't surely need this. Whatever else is wrong with humanity, we don't need this. But Nicodemus needed to know that he had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of his sin was also death. And that you have been as really and truly as it were bitten by the serpent as anybody else out there. And we need to know that. We need to see that. If Christ is to be precious to us. Now consider the full cure offered. 
And you go back to Numbers chapter 21. I'm going to read verse 7 here. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord. Remember, they grumbled against providence, the Lord, and against his servant, and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a certain a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. One of the most striking gospel narratives in all of the Old Testament. Repentance is made, an acknowledgement of sin is made among the people. And an atonement or a cure, I should say, is provided in a most unusual way. Moses is commanded by God to make an image of the serpent and to raise it, or one of the serpents, and to raise it on a pole. And what the people are bidden to do is, again, so striking and, and historically so unusual that it were it not for its historical fulfillment, we, we would really wonder at this. But what they're told to do in order to receive a cure from the deadly bite of the fiery serpent is to look at that brazen serpent made and, and hung upon a pole and they are promised that if they will only look at it, that they will be healed. And we are told that that's exactly what happens. That every person who had been bitten and poisoned by the serpent, everyone in agony and anticipating death, that when they looked, they were made well. Now, how strange. Some of you have recently been in the hospital and no doubt others are going to go this year. And you can imagine if the doctor said, listen, all right, uh, I understand you've had a heart attack or I understand you have cancer. I have a photograph I'd like you to look at. And if you'll look at it, you'll be better. And you'd say, you got to be, you, you, you got to, look, doc, that's not how medicine works. No, you got you to cut me open. You got to take something out. You got to put something in. You got to give me medications. You got to put in an IV and all of this. That's not the way. You don't just look at something and are made better. And the question comes, how did this take away the pain? And how did this take away the poison? How did this spare them from death? How did this bring life to everyone who looked? Was there some magic in the bronze serpent? Some magic in the pole? Well, you remember some later came to believe something like that for that bronze serpent, which was on the display in, of, of history, Israel history, was taken and worshipped for a time by the people. But it wasn't because there was anything inherent in the bronze serpent or in the pole. What was required of these people was to trust what God had said. This is what God said to do. You remember Naaman, the captain of the army of the Assyrians? And he had leprosy. 
And what, 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 what do I, what do, I do? And, and so this, the servant of the Lord says, hey, what you do. I want you to go to the Jordan. I want you to dip yourself seven times in the water. And if you do that, your skin's going to come out. You're going you're to look like a newborn baby. And he said, look, I thought you'd wave your hands, you know, do a little dance, do a prayer, burn some incense, you know, shake the tambourine and, you know, make me drink a potion and then I'd be cured. And, and one of his other servants comes to him and goes, look, if, if the prophet had said to you to do something great, would you not have done it? Pay a bunch of money, right? Go on a journey, go to a certain place, spin a prayer wheel, alter your life, confess to something and, and you'll be better when you've done it. And he says, look, just, just believe what he says and do what he says. And so he does, and he is cured. What happened was God said to do this. Nicodemus, there is a cure for you and for all of those who have, bitten, who have been bitten by the great serpent. He says here, the son of man... Excuse me, so and as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The Son of Man was a term, as you know, that Jesus often employed to speak of himself. It's a term that spoke of, of glory and dignity. It was a messianic term. It had its roots in Daniel chapter 7. It was the one who approached the ancient of days, and to him was given a kingdom and dominion that he should rule all the nations of the world. Of this one, he said, must be lifted up. And as the serpent was lifted on a pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted onto a pole what some old preachers would call a Roman gibbet, a piece of wood. And as the serpent was bound there, so he would be bound there. As the serpent was nailed there, he would be nailed there. I must be placed upon a pole. And as Moses put the brass serpent upon the pole and lifted it up for all to see, so God is, as it were, going to place me on a pole so that all... We'll see, not, not, not visually. Remember one of the things Paul said to the Galatians. He said that Jesus Christ has been, I'm going to use a, a more modern term with some of the translations say placarded. Jesus Christ has been billboarded as crucified to you. I desired, I determined to make nothing known except Christ and him crucified. As Moses nailed the serpent to the pole, so God is going to nail me, as it were, to the cross. Now those words are shocking, but before the full effect of the full reality of the words can sink, and our Lord makes a wonderful statement, and I want to consider now the glorious promise of our Lord made. You see it there in verse 15, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever looked at the serpent was healed. And whoever will look at the one placed upon a new pole will likewise be healed. His offer is free. Whoever, whosoever, so whoever you are, Whatever your need, what, what, however deep the poison is in you, whether you're 5 or 15 or 50 or 75 or older, 
young or old, male or female, black, white, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your color, whatever your heritage, wherever you come from, whatever your native tongue, whatever your religious past, whether you've heard much of the gospel or little, whether you feel your sins greatly or only a bit, if you'll look, whoever you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what you haven't done, whoever you are, it's free. Secondly, it's simple. I don't know how to make the gospel any simpler than this. Who believes? Who looks, as it were, with faith upon what God has said and what God has done. Those in the wilderness had to believe God. They had to believe the prophet, Moses. I'm making a, bra- a brazen serpent. Again, put yourself there. Again, you know, we, we read some of these things in the Bible and we just take it like, oh, it was just normal for them. No, it wasn't. Put yourself in their shoes, their sandals. And the man of God says to you, listen, this is it. I've, all of you who have been bitten by the serpents, look. And if you look, it's all you have to do. If you look, you'll be healed. They had to rest their eyes upon the labors of another. They had to look away from themselves, as it were, in their wounds. And they had to look at the serpent, and there was hope to be found nowhere else. There weren't six options that Moses made. Made one. And again, they had to turn from themselves and whatever self-made cures or whatever else they were doing to alleviate their misery. They had to believe that they were really dying and they needed to trust in the only provision that God had made for them. Again, it was to believe the servant of God proclaiming the word of God and casting the hope of their life upon that promise. Didn't have to understand. You didn't have to understand the way that it worked. Didn't have to understand all the fine intricacies of it. All you needed to know is that God had bidden you look, and that if you will look, you will be healed. Didn't have to make their own private serpent. Didn't have to walk over to it. They didn't have to rub it. They didn't have to do anything to it other than to look upon it. And when the gospel comes, and it comes in that simplicity, and particularly at times, you know, when somebody maybe has really felt the power of their sin and the guilt of their sin and the shame of their sin, and, and they're willing, as it were, I'll do anything God wants me to do. I'll pay whatever I need to pay. I'll confess however I need to confess. I'll, I'll do it. And, 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 and we say to them, look, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you'll be saved. You just need to look at him. You need to gaze at him. And so the offer was universal, the offer was simple, the the offer was also certain. Whoever opens their eyes and will look shall not perish. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's a reminder here that there is something far worse than physical death. I, I spoke earlier, if, there was a, if, if, you were, if you had a disease and you'd do everything you could to, to, get, to get rid of that disease, we'll undergo tremendous expense and pain in order to get cured of something, 
that in the end will only give us more years on earth that, you know, you're going to, all these people in the wilderness died physically. But there's something more than this. And Jesus talks about this in John chapter 11 uh, in the, the narrative of the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And he's talking to Lazarus's sister and he says in, in John 11:25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me looks to me. Though he may die, shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall, shall never die. So what do you mean, Jesus? They're going to die, but they're also never going to die. Yes, their body will die, but their soul will never die. Because there is the dying of the body and there is the eternal perishing of the soul. There is a perishing far worse than anything we can think. There is a second death that the Bible says to us that makes the shedding of our earthly frame to be nothing. To die once, yes, is fearful. To die twice is eternal. A death in which you never really die. Jesus is letting Nicodemus know that there is a place where the smoke of the torment of the damned lasts forever. Jesus spoke of hell as being a place prepared for the devil and his angels, a place where untold multitudes will one day go. He described it as outer darkness, a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And those bitten by the serpent would have spent hours in agony, but those who die in their sins spend an eternity in agony. But if sinners will look upon what God has raised up, the one that God has placed, as it were, upon a pole, if they'll look at him, they will not perish. But Jim, you don't know what sins I've done. I know, but if you look at him, you'll not perish. But somebody's got to pay for my sins. I know, the one on the pole paid for your sins. And if you look at him, you will not perish. But then his offer is also glorious. For not only will you not perish, but you will have eternal or everlasting life. And here is where the realities are so much greater than the picture. Again, those who looked upon the serpent were spared a miserable, painful death, only to die again at another point. Imagine some of these people may have died, and then you know, six weeks later they got hit by a, a wagon or something like that out of control, or chopping down a tree the wrong way, and it fell on them, they had a heart attack. God spared them from physical death only for a time. It was a stay of execution. And that's really what every medical procedure and operation is. It's just you just push your expiration date pat a little bit further down the road. But Jesus says there are those who will have everlasting or eternal life. There are, as I mentioned, those who will spend thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars medically to do what, again, is only the extension of the inevitable. Those in our scenario who were spared of cancer, mentioned earlier, will one day die. All Moses could promise was a few more years in the wilderness. What God promises to those who look on the sun is everlasting life. And that speaks not only of the ages of life, I mean, to live, to live forever in some conditions would be horrible. It's not just a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. He who believes in me out of his heart shall flow waters, living waters. It's a joy of life that comes in the Savior. 
But how do people respond to this? Though the text is not explicit in Numbers 21, it, it appears, it tells us what happened to those who did look. Did some not look? Did it seem too foolish? Too hard to believe? Too, too much of a, a scandal to believe that that could be the cure? How rattling to the senses of the intellect to believe that if I will look on this thing, I will live. If Moses had said, I will send doctors and medicine through the camp, I will give shots and an IV or place it in a gas that we will you know, spread in the camp, it would be welcomed with open arms. But if I tell you to simply look, how ludicrous. I'll not look. How can a brass snake do anything for me? It's so simple as to be foolishness. And so it is with the Son of Man. How foolish it seems that the solution to man's greatest need is that Jesus of Nazareth should come into this world and shed his blood upon a cross. And so humanity says, yes, we admit something is wrong with us. There's something very wrong with people and we need to cure it. There's something wrong in a world where police are shot in broad daylight on a busy street. Something wrong in a world where three-year-olds are gunned down by gangs or horribly abused or sold to traffickers. Yeah, something's wrong with humanity. Man is hateful and prejudiced. He's twisted and perverted and immoral and angry and rebellious. He's murderous. He steals. He cheats. He lies. He blasphemes. And civilization apparently has not made him any better. As soon as a new technology comes along, we just think of a way to pervert it. Wealth has made him no better. Psychotherapy and drugs have made him no better. Morality has made him no better. Immorality has made him no better. And along comes a gospel preacher. And as Moses must have done, he parades through the world, as it were, saying, Look, 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 and you'll be saved. Look here and you will be transformed. And the world laughs at the essence of it and the simplicity of it. To think that a Nazarene carpenter nailed to a Roman cross will cure what Freud and Jung and doctors and shrinks and presidents and lawmakers and kings and queens and prime ministers and entertainers cannot do. To simply say that men and women and children must abandon every other source of help and simply look with faith upon the cross of Christ, and that the burden, the pain, and the penalty of your sin will be removed, it sounds laughable. Give us rules, give us morality, give us tangible solutions, and plans, and money, and more education. Let us change our environment. Let's end racism and sexism and become tolerant of all lifestyles, and then the world will be a better place to live. Give us perhaps some religion and form and ceremony and doctrines and theology that we may discuss and feel wise. But do not give me Christ on a cross. Yes, I know the testimony of others who happened to look and were made well, but I will not look. That's what the world says. But let me personalize it. How do you respond? Some of you have yet to respond. There is a disease that ravages your heart. It's gone into every part of you. Some of you will admit it. Some of you don't want to admit it. You, 
You, you want to say, I don't know why I'm the way that I am, but it's affected you, your mind, your eyes, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your feet, your sexual parts. Sin has polluted all of you. And you don't understand your heart because you refuse to reckon with your sin. You refuse to believe what God has said about you. And maybe you try to change yourself. You try to make your sin less dangerous. So some do that, right? Don't drink as much. I won't smoke as much. I'll use a condom. I'll use a clean needle and some of the things the world has offered. But do all of that. And it means that you'll die perhaps as an old person rather than as a young person. But you'll still die. And you'll have gone through life trying to treat symptoms without dealing with the reality, the underlying source. And so you say, well, all right, what do I need to do? Well, look, you need to look. Look upon the Son of God and believe on him. You're going to add something. No, I'm not. That's the simple gospel that so many stumble over. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Call upon him. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And yes, inherent in that, repent and believe, yes, but believe the gospel, believe in God's son. The Lord said long ago, look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. You say, I'm blind. Well, then be as Bartimaeus in the scriptures and say, Lord, I want to see. You say, I have so little faith. Go to God and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Faith as the grain of a mustard seed is enough to bring you heaven. A simple look, eyes swollen through the poison of the serpents was enough to save the man in Moses' day. And simple faith in Christ is enough to radically change your life now. You allow your unbelief to seal your doom. I understand you don't like being told you're a sinner. You don't like thinking that God is ever angry with you. But better to see it now. Better to mourn for moments and find hope and joy in Christ than to do so for an eternity. And Maybe for some of our little ones here, the reason you've not yet been saved. You think about how good you are, how you're better than others. You know a little bit of the Bible and... You're content with that, and you've never said, Lord, save me. And what are those who do know and do love the Savior and yet still mourn over that sin that remains in each of us? No other way has been granted for relief than to look. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that we run this, the race the same way we began, by looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In just a moment, I'm going to go over here, and some of our young ladies are going to go over there, and we're going to witness two baptisms. And what are they going to be preaching to us in the waters of baptism? Simply this. You've read their testimonies. I looked. The day came, and I looked. And God was true to his promise. Oh, may God bless these things to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this time in your word. We pray that you would use it and bless it for the joy of your people, for your honor and glory, and for the salvation of those who are lost. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name.